Be'eschanan is an incredible parsha with numerous highlights, one of which is in Paragvav, Pasuk right after the famous Pasuk of the Shema, we read, The command to love Hashem with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and all of our means. The question is, what does exactly this entail? What does it mean to love Hashem? We hopefully understand what it means to love another human being. There are different kinds of loves. There's parental love, there's romantic love, there's friendship love. But what does it mean to love Hashem? What does it mean to love someone we cannot see, that we cannot feel? And this is a question that not only I think many of us intuitively raise, it's a question that was raised by some of the Mepharshim, including, for example, the Mizrahi. So, a question this profound obviously has many different approaches in the Mepharshim, but we'll study just one, that of the Shita, the opinion, and the approach of the Rambam. The Rambam actually discusses this in a number of places, and I think understood in a holistic way, there is a profound, insightful, and sophisticated approach, just as we would expect from the Rambam. So in terms of the question of how one loves Hashem, the Rambam discusses this in two places. In Hilchos Yisodei Torah, in the, in the Mishnah Torah, in Perak Beis, the Rambam tells us how one comes to love God. If one contemplates and considers the incredible creations that God has created, you will be overwhelmed and awed from the creation, from the chachma, from the wisdom that went into the creation. They're overwhelming, they're incomparable, they're never-ending. And immediately, miyad hu ohev hu meshabeach mefoer hu metavet You'll be filled with an overwhelming love of Hashem, and that love will fuel a desire to know more and more and more, and to get to know more. When you see such incredible things, not only are you taken in by it, but you're taken in by it, and therefore you want to know more, and the more you know, the more you want to know. And it's a never-ending cycle, hopefully, of becoming impassioned and in love with Hashem, based on this intellectual apprehension of Hashem. He also, in this passage, says that the same contemplation will bring a yira of Hashem, although that is not our topic, but his primary focus seems to be that by studying and contemplating and understanding to the best of our ability the wonders of nature and science and the natural world, that will come to help us love Hashem. And he concludes, Shiyu petach lemevin Hashem, that this contemplation, this analysis, this understanding will be a petach, an opening to those who will come to understand and love Hashem. And I think that metaphor, at least the way I understand it, that term a petach, is again, there's nothing guaranteed and it's not necessarily going to be uniform, but it's an opening, an opening that allows us to cross that great divide and somehow apprehend a little bit of who Hashem is and therefore hopefully come to love Him. In the Sefer HaMitzvos, right in the beginning, Mitzvah say Gimel, the third mitzvah that the Rambam lists, he also mentions, again, the mitzvah of loving Hashem and discusses how one does it. Here also he mentions, yet again, the impression and the importance, I should say, of contemplating the natural world. But here there's a different focus. Again, he mentions the pulos, the the creations of Hashem, but here the focus is primarily studying deeply and analyzing 
the mitzvos of Hashem, by understanding the mitzvos, God's moral will, that will also, the brilliance of it, the insightfulness of it, that will also bring one to Hashem. And in order to bolster this, he quotes a medrash in the Sifrei, which comments on the Pasuk of Yehavtas Hashem Elokecha, so the medrash itself asks, how do you love Hashem? And therefore the medrash answers the very next Pasuk, these very things that I'm commanding you, the mitzvos, place them on your heart. Contemplate those mitzvos. Study those. And through that you'll understand the author of those wisdoms. But in other words, whereas the creation is an expression of God's natural will, the mitzvos are an expression of His moral will. And by studying and contemplating those, we get an insight into God, and that will hopefully bring us to love Him as well. On the one hand, these are somewhat different. One is talking about the natural world, the other one is talking about the moral world, and the moral will of Hashem, the mitzvos. On the other hand, they share a common denominator and that they are both somewhat intellectual. By contemplating and studying in a deep way, that will come to lead uh, to Hashem. However, it's interesting that when the Rambam, in a third selection, in Hilchos Tshuva, in Perak Yud, when he describes what love of God looks like, not how to get there, but what it looks like experientially, he speaks of something very emotional. He says, you should love Hashem with an incredible, overwhelming love, Ava Gedola Yisera Aza Ma'od, until the extent that you are completely connected, obsessed, we might say, in the vernacular with Hashem, and you love Him and you're thinking about Him constantly, you're constantly thinking about Hashem, until you're lovesick. It's just like a man who becomes totally in love with, infatuated, obsessed with a woman, all he can do is think about this woman that he loves, so to that type of lovesickness and constantly thinking and thinking more and more about Hashem, that's the love of Hashem that we're talking about. On the one hand, this may seem like a little bit of a contradiction. The previous sources struck a much more intellectual, contemplative uh, posture, and here the Rambam seems to talk about something emotional, to say the least, something intense, extremely emotional. But I think the answer is clear, and that is if we read the Rambam just a little bit further on in Hechoshuvah and Perak Yud, the Rambam says explicitly that while the goal in its experience is emotional a connection to Hashem, any you can't love God, unless you know Him. In the memorable formulation of the Rambam here. To the extent that you know him, you can love him. We cannot know someone or something that we do not know. Only by knowing Hashem can we come to love him. And therefore, says Rambam, what are the two ways, the twin ways we get to know Hashem? Through understanding his natural will, the expression of the natural world, and his moral will through the mitzvah. So if we do those, which is an intellectual process, that will bring to the incredible emotional intensity of loving Hashem as described in Hechos Tshuva. The opening of our parsha recounts the poignant and even tragic episode of Moshe's pleading and prayers with God, begging that he should be allowed to enter the land of Israel with the Jewish people. And in fact, Hashem giving Moshe for one last time the answer that he will in fact not be able to go into the land of Israel. He will stay on this side of the Yardane where he will pass away shortly. And it is only Yehoshua, his student, who will lead the Jewish people over the Yardane into the land of Israel and into the next chapter of Jewish history. In addition to the personal, the human, and the emotional dimension of these psukim, many of our classical and even contemporary uh, mafarshim glean from this section important lessons of philosophy, hashkafa, and of musr that we can take from these psukim from this section when it comes to the right attitude and posture we should have, when it comes to tefillah, when it comes to prayer. So, for starters, the 
Medrash tells us that the Eschanan El Hashem Esahilemor, the opening of our parsha, that Moshe pleaded with Hashem at that moment to be able, able to land, enter the land of Israel. So the Medrash Agoda says that the Eschanan is the numerical equivalent. It is the gematria of 515. Moshe davened 515 times to be able to be allowed to enter the land of Israel. There are many things that we can learn about tefillah perhaps, and even about Moshe himself from this insight. But one particularly that I want to focus in is that, focus on, and that is specifically, he never gave up. He kept on davening because he believed in the power of tefillah. And we, like Moshe, need to believe in that power, in the possibility of tefillah. The Yalkut Shimoni here on our Parsha says, if Moshe believed in the power of tefillah and he never gave up, we need to learn the lesson from that as well. The Medrash in Devarim Rabbah, here on our Parsha, in Parsha Bays, similarly says, commenting on a Pasuk in the next parak in Parak Dalid, Pasuk Zayin, the whole Karenu love, Moshe describes Hashem, that he can answer, and he'll answer Tfilos, anyone who calls out to him, Karenu in the plural, and the Medrash specifically says, the reason it's in the plural, is because there isn't one model, rather many different situations call for different types, and different models, and different amounts of Tfilah. In the words of the Medrash, there may be Tfilos that can be answered simultaneously, in an instant, the moment they're offered. Other Tfilos will be answered shortly after they're offered. But others may take days, weeks, even years, and even a hundred years in the case of Abram Ravinu. And the lesson is that we can never lose faith in tefillah. Any tefillah could be answered. No tefillah goes unanswered. But some may just take more time than others. Getting back to the opening parak of our parsha, when Moshe is recounting this desperate attempt of his to be allowed to enter the land of Israel, he then tells the Jewish people, despite all of my attempts, Hashem got upset at me, he told me he wasn't going to allow me in because of sin, etc., and because of you. Rav lach al tosef, dabari laiv, od Hashem told me to stop it, don't add any more tefillos on this matter. And we learn from this, say the Midrashim, that had Moshe continued, who knows, he might have actually been given permission, but he never stopped, and we can never stop, despite how desperate the situation appears. And perhaps the most famous and important statement that Chazal make in this vein actually comes from the Gemara Mesech Tabrachos and Dafyur Amar Aleph, describing Chizkiyahu HaMelech, who had already been told by a Navi, no less than a Navi, that he had no hope, no chance to merit Olam Haba after he dies, he will suffer eternal damnation, he will not get the blessing of Olam Haba, and the Navi told him there's no chance to change that, and Chizkiyo responds very strongly back to him that my tradition is, even if the sharpness of the sword, the sword of Damocles, as it were, is hanging right above your neck, you're about to get killed, you're about to die, never stop davening, never give up hope, Hashem can always save you, even at the, the last moment. So this is all one large point, the first point we're making, which is the importance of believing in the power of tefillah, and the first dimension of that is, because we believe in the power of tefillah, Therefore, we never give up, even if we don't feel like we've been answered, or even if we feel, God forbid, we've gotten a negative answer, we still never give up davening, because it could always change, and it could always be the positive answer we're looking for in an instant. A second dimension of this idea of the need to believe in tefillah comes out of a comment of the Or HaChaim HaKarosh in Paragimel here, right on the outset of our Parsha. Why does it say, Eschanan El Hashem Esahi Lamor? Why the need for the extra word Lamor? I begged, I pleaded with Hashem saying. It seems to be unnecessary. 
And the Orchayim explains that this alludes to the fact that Moshe was very specific in his request to go into the land of Israel. It wasn't a general or vague, please let me into the land of Israel. But rather, Moshe was mefaret. He was very specific in where he wanted to go, the specific places he wanted people to visit and see in the land of Israel. Why was that important? Why was it necessary, is it important to be detail-oriented in our tefillos. So in the contemporary work of Drush and Musr, the Darash Mordechai, or Mordechai Druk explains that precision and specificity in our tefillos is an indication of emuna, because it shows that we put our trust in Hashem and believe that He can and will intervene even for the smallest details. We don't just ask in general for parnasah, in general good health, in general for help with our marriage or our children, but rather, as the Pasuk in Tehillim says, Harhev piyu v'amaleyu, the more expansive, the more detailed, the more specific we are in our tefillos, v'amaleyu, the more likely is Hashem is to fulfill those requests. Because, as Rav Mordechai Druk explains, the fact that we're very specific in what we want shows our belief that not only can Hashem do something in general or in vague sense, but we believe that Hashem could get it exactly right. He could dot the I's, He could cross the T's exactly as we want it. And we so believe in that that we're even willing to be specific in our requests of Hashem. And therefore, that is a second dimension of this idea of believing in tefillah, not only as we previously saw to repeat our tefillahs when necessary, but to be as specific as possible. And finally, we learn something incredible from this episode in the fact that uh, in Parsha Hazinu, actually, in Paraklamet Bays, before telling Moshe to go up to Har Navo, it says for his death, the Pesach says, Vedabar Hashem Moshe Be'etzem Hayom Hazeh. Why does it say Be'etzem Hayom Hazeh? So Yaakov Shimoni explains that even if the Jewish people will try to stop Hashem from killing Moshe, they won't be able to do anything, and Hashem says, I'll, I'm going to lead Moshe to his death right in the middle of the day, I'm not going to do anything sneaky, you won't be able to stop me. What could they have possibly done? What would the Hava mean have been? What would the Jewish people have thought that they could stop Hashem from killing Moshe? How would they have stopped? So Mechaim Shemulevitz explains, because if they would have davened, that could have stopped Moshe from dying. And Hashem saying, doesn't matter, I'm going to kill him no matter what you do. What could have stopped it, theoretically, is their prayers. And lastly, in this point, very, very painfully, the parsha, the Medrash there in Devarim Rabbim says, that as Moshe is about to die, he's upset at the Jewish people. Why didn't you daven for him? It could have helped. After all the things I did for you, why didn't you daven for me? And there also Rav Mordechai Druk explains, because they lost their belief in tefillah. They didn't believe that their tefillahs could matter, and therefore they didn't daven. The first of the Aser Sadebros is Anochi Hashem Lokecha, the declaration of the existence of God. And of course, this is an incredibly complex topic philosophically, theologically, but in the brief time that we have, I wanted to focus on one very specific uh, question, and that is, what is the best approach to understanding God? Is this something that is philosophical? Is it something that should be more emotional, spiritual, or instinctive? What is the best way to understand God? What is the best way to come to a knowledge of or belief in God? And in this very, very important question, I think that fundamentally there are two broad approaches and perhaps a nuanced third view in between them. One pole would certainly be set by the Rambam. The Rambam very famously in the beginning of his magnum opus of Mishnah Torah, in the beginning of Hilchos Yesodia Torah and Perak Aleph, tells us that Yesod HaYesodos Arumar HaChachma, the foundation of everything is Aleida Shiesham Matzarishon, to know that there is a first cause. And he says a few paragraphs later, in fact, the Rambam's position is that it's a mitzvah uh, to have belief in God, but what I want to focus on today is not the mitzvah aspect, but that the Rambam here defines it as yidia, not emuna belief, but yidia, knowledge. And it certainly sounds like what the Rambam is indicating is that it is significant to have logical or philosophical basis 
in your knowledge of God, proofs perhaps we would say, and this is certainly consistent with what the Rambam writes in Marnevuchim, in the Guide to the Perplexed, where he himself offers four such proofs. Whether or not that is the Rambam's view, it is certainly the view of others, for example, the Chovos Halavavos is another prominent uh, Rishon who was very much into proofs and philosophical and logical ways of demonstrating the existence of God. The problem for the Rambam, however, is that in a second source, in his book of mitzvos, in the first mitzvah, in Sefer mitzvos, the Rambam says that the first mitzvah in the Torah is, we are commanded l'ha'amin, to believe in God. And it's obvious, as you can expect, many commentaries are bothered, the apparent contradiction, is it leda, to know God, to be certain, or is it a leap of faith, is it l'ha'amin? So the truth is, it may not be a contradiction at all, because the Rambam wrote his Sefer mitzvos originally in Arabic. And the translation that I just read to you from that says Amin is from the original and classic uh, translation from the original Arabic by Ibn Tibbin. However, in more recent years, in the mid and late 20th century, scholars such as Rav Kapach and Rav Chaim Heller have actually suggested that that was an incorrect translation of the original Arabic, and in fact it really should be not Amin but Lada'as, which would make the two sources in the Rambam in fact consistent, that the Rambam most likely believes that, in fact, no pun intended, that it's not belief in God in the sense of blind faith, but rather a knowledge of, a more certain awareness of, knowledge of God. Another possible way of resolving this contradiction, if you assume that La Amin is the correct uh, girsa in the Rambam, is quoted in the name of Reb Chaim Salvechik. And he suggested that, in fact, the reason there may be two different formulations is because maybe, in fact, they're both true. That Yediyah refers to those aspects of God which are actually knowable to a human. And there may be certain aspects, and from Reb Chaim's perspective at least, the very existence of God is obvious. How could there be a bira without a balabira? How could a creation not have a creator? So things like that, which according to Reb Chaim are knowable and even somewhat obvious for the human mind, that there is an obligation to know and to be certain about. However, even Reb Chaim acknowledges that there are many aspects and specific details about God, how he interacts with the world, and other aspects of his existence which are beyond what a human being can understand. And it's about those where we have a tradition about specifics of the way God interacts with the world, etc., which we can't truly understand or truly demonstrate logically or rationally. So there, says Reb Chaim, that's why the Ramam added the second dimension of Amin. In fact, according to this, the Ramam holds that they're both true. He's not an extremist in one side of just saying Yediya, philosophical, logical knowledge and proof, but rather the Ramam may require or need both dimensions. Whether or not that is the Ramam's view, that is certainly the view in the middle position of summary Rishonim. For example, both the Ramban and the Sefer Achinoch say that the obligation or the commandment here being referred to in Aser Sedebros is Shiyeidu v'ya'aminu that you should both know and believe. And perhaps the explanation is, as we just saw, that belief comes in where knowledge ends. But either way, whatever exactly the reason is for it, certainly Ramban and Chinuch include both dimensions. So Ramban primarily holds that it's a, something that is logical and knowable. Perhaps there's a nuance there, but certainly there's a middle position that definitely holds that there are both. The opposite pole of the idea of the Ramban and the focus on philosophy and logic is most notably uh, advocated by Rabbi Yudha Halevi in his famous work, the Sefer HaKuzari, in the fourth section. He points out that it's not enough to rely on philosophical proofs, but rather the Chiddush of Judaism, through Avram Avinu, is to have a relationship with Hashem. 
And the God of Aristotle, as he puts it, is abstract and impersonal. But the Chiddush of Avram was that he had a relationship with Hashem. In other words, he says, it's not just that philosophy is insufficient, it's that it cannot, by definition, prove the very aspects of God which are connected to having a relationship. Not just that the proofs may not be so great, and we can question the proofs. Even if the proofs were great, they only discuss the existence of God, but that has nothing to do with having a relationship with Him. To have a relationship with Him, we have to know and believe that He hears us, that He interacts with us. And says Rabbi Levi, there's no way you could possibly uh, prove uh, that. Rather, it is basically through revelation, through the nevuah that Avram received, through the mass revelation and nevuah that Jewish people had at Har Sinai. That is how people have a relationship with Hashem, and that relationship through revelation, through knowledge, through instinct, excuse me, through emotion, that is actually much more authentic and much more uh, sustaining than any logical proof. However, it is worth noting that this is all fine and good if you actually experience prophecy. But what about the rest of us, unfortunately, for most of human history that have not had prophecy? So this is, of course, a huge question, but a short answer to this is suggested a very important essay by Baron Lichtenstein, who suggests that his relationship with Hashem on an instinctive gut level his study of Torah, mitzvah observance, or even just observing nature, or even just a newborn baby, all of those are opportunities that nourished his faith. And as he says it, the primary source of human faith is faith itself. He acknowledges this may seem uh, circular or even delusional, but he says trusting his gut in these authentic experiences is the most real thing in his life. In a parsha filled with so many highlights... Perhaps the most poignant and certainly the most emotional is the opening section of the Parsha where Moshe pleads with Hashem that Hashem should rescind his decision, rescind his decree to not allow Moshe into Eretz Yisrael. Moshe asks yet again, he begs, he pleads, el Hashem I implored, he says, I begged Hashem at that time saying, Adonai Hashem, Please, you who've already shown your greatness, your strong hand, there's no one like you, but Shemai Muvaretz, no one can do what you can do. Please, please let me cross, let me go against, go across the, the river, let me see this beautiful, beautiful land. Chazal, we know, famously Darshan, from the gematria of the word of Eschanan, the Moshe didn't give up 515 tefilot. Not only did he beg constantly, but he was willing even to, you could say, debase himself. Eschanan, Rashi tells us, as Miloshon, in chinam b'chamokam el loshon matnas chinam. Moshe was willing to say, even if I don't deserve it, even if I have no zechusim, but please, I'm begging you anyway, please, let me go in, please have mercy on me. Moshe had no zechuyos. It doesn't matter, of course he had many zechuyos. Moshe was willing to admit to being undeserving if that would have been enough to get him in. And despite his unbelievably sincere yearning and his pleading, we read, of course, of the difficult response that he received. V'yisaber Hashem bi, Hashem became angry with me. L'manchem v'lo shamaylai. Unfortunately, the sin that happened with the Jewish people, Moshe is held responsible for his actions, for their actions. And Hashem says to me, Rav lach al tosef, don't say another word to me. Od b'davar hazeh, alei rosha piska, you can go up on the mountain, you can look, say necha yama v'tzafona v'semana mizracha, you can look all around, re'ei be'inecha, but nevertheless, lo ta'avor es hayar Moshe, you will not pass 
and cross over the Yardane. You will not go in to Eretz Yisrael. Moshe is the first, but certainly not the last, Jew throughout history who desperately wanted to get into Eretz Yisrael, but wasn't able to. Throughout our history, we have had great tzaddikim who have desperately desired, and some in fact who tried to make the trek, and for a variety of different reasons and circumstances, weren't able to go. In essence, they were told, not through Navua perhaps, but through circumstances, they were given the same decision as Moshe received. Lo ta'avor es hazeh. How many Jews throughout history have wanted to come and to be able to see Eretz Yisrael, to live here? And they too, in one way or another, were given the response, Lo ta'avor es hazeh. Nevertheless, if one genuinely has that desire, as much as it would be disappointing not to be able to live in Eretz Yisrael, one can take comfort, perhaps, in a very important and powerful Gemara in Masech Tzubis. The Gemara there on Daf Ayin Hey, Darshan's Apostle in Tehillim, Ulitzion Yomar Ish Ve'ish Yuladba, Hu Yichonena Elyon, that there are two people who are considered an Ish of Tzion, two people who are considered those who are the citizens of Tzion. Says the Gemara. There is a natural born citizen, but there is also somebody who may not be able to be there, but he's mitzapa lirosa. He desires to be there. And the Gemara implies that even the one who is not in Israel, but he's mitzapa lirosa, that is considered ish ish, an ish of Tzion, a citizen of Tzion. Rabbi Aaron Salvechik, in the work Logic of the Heart, Logic of the Mind, tells a remarkable story about a period in history, in the earlier part of the 20th century, where Jews were trying to emigrate to pre-mandate Palestine, pre-state Palestine, and there was quotas on the visas from different countries, and there was a bunch of Jews who wanted to emigrate, but from whatever country they were coming from, the visas had already been used up. And therefore some of the Jews living in then-Palestine had the idea of forging passports and visas to make it look as if they were from countries, citizens of countries that still had more visas that could allow them into the Holy Land. And they asked the great rabbi, Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld, if it was allowed, and he said, no, how could you do that? You're lying. You can't see you're from one country if you're from another. A few days later, they came back to Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld, and they said, we have a different idea. Instead of forging passports that say we're from this country in Europe and not that country, why don't we forge passports that say we're from Palestine, that these Jews are from Palestine. And Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld gave them a bracha for their efforts. But they were confused, they didn't understand. A few days earlier he told us we can't lie, we can't make a passport that says they're from a country they're not from, and now you're allowing us? And Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld responded by quoting this Gemara. If someone genuinely is trying to get to Eretz Yisrael, that even before they get there, even when they're still in the Bechina of Hametzah Rosa, they're already considered an Ish Tzion. And therefore to write that they are from Palestine is not a lie, in fact, on a deep existential level. It's true. And they are already citizens of Tzion by the very fact that they are Metzapeh Lirosa. This, I think, is something for all of us to think about when we consider the greatest of all men, Moshe Rabbeinu, who is deprived of something, that we are fortunate in our time and generation to be blessed with the ability to do, which is, if we want, to come and live in Eretz Yisrael. Moshe was so desperate, and Hashem told him, no, lo tavor es hayardein hazeh.
And obviously each person has to do their own cheshbon nefesh. And it's also possible that unfortunately there will be people even in today, in our day and age, will feel that circumstances are such that lo tavorat hayardein hazeh, that's not for anyone else to judge. That's a person in their own conscience, in the privacy, in their relationship with Hashem. Only Hashem can judge. And that is an honest cheshbon and nefesh that everyone must do with themselves. But at least to desire to go, to think about it, to be inspired by Moshe's desire, that is something I believe is obligatory on all of us. Rev. Levi Yitzhak of Berdichev suggests that a foundational piece of the Hasidic approach to tefillah can be detected from a single word in the opening of this week's Parsha. We read at the outset, V'eschanan el Hashem ba'esahi lemor. It's describing Moshe's tefillah and his pleading to Hashem to be able to enter into the land of Israel. However, notes Reb Levi Yitzchak and his Sefer Kedushas Levi that the word lemor seems to be extra. V'eschanan el Hashem ba'esahi, colon, and now tell me what the tefillah is. What's the need for the word lemor? Now the truth is that we may be familiar with this type of phraseology. It does come up often in the Torah. So-and-so said, saying. But the truth of the matter is, says Levi Yitzchak, that really only makes sense even in the biblical Hebrew construct if this is something that is going to be told to somebody else. If this was what Moshe was saying and would be said to the Jewish people or something like that, there would be a further communication to some other uh, recipient, then, says Rav Yitzchak, it would make sense. But here, this is the tefillah that Moshe is giving directly to Hashem. Why do we need to have the extra laymore? So says Rav Yitzchak, to answer this question so beautifully and so powerfully, he says, V'nira sheperush haposok be'eschanan el Hashem be'esahi, perush, she'haya mischanein tchila k'day she'yuchal hispalel acharkach. That is to say, what we're reading here in this first pasuk is the tefillah, lifnei the tefillah, the tefillah, the prayer, but for the prayer. The word of eschanan is not referring to the actual prayer that Moshe offered to Hashem to be allowed to enter Eretz Yisrael, but rather it is his prayer that he offered before that prayer. Lamor then transitions and tells us that now is coming the actual tefillah that Hashem, Moshe communicated to Hashem. But in fact, two different tefillahs are being alluded to. Ve'eschanan el Hashem. That is Moshe davening that he should be able to pray. Ve'eschanan el Hashem be'esahileimor. That is the actual tefillah. Now why was that necessary? What exactly is going on? So Revelev Yitzchak explains, She'kodem lo'hoya yocho leimor. Ki'hoya bosh mi'lefanav yisparach. Wa'hayetzarach lispalel she'yuchal lispalel. And this is the foundational Hasidic idea which Levi Yitzchak finds in our Parsha. That is to say, naturally on our own, we really can't pray. We can't daven. We can't approach Hashem. We need to daven that we should be able to daven. Often many of us find it difficult to daven. I think, ironically, many of us, because we don't appreciate davening, but we should take some comfort in the fact that many of the greatest tzaddikim also found it difficult to daven, but for very different reasons than unfortunately many of us. And that is because they so appreciated davening, they so well understood what it meant to be speaking intimately, one-on-one with the Reboner Shalolam, the Master of the Universe, that that itself was something that was completely overwhelming to them. And therefore, says Rav Levi Yitzchak, and this is an idea that you find 
in Hasidic practice and written about in other Hasidic sources, it's important to, as he writes it, lihispalel sheyuchal lihispalel, to daven, that we should be able to daven, to take a step back even before the formal tefillah and to spend at least a brief moment davening that we should be able to summon the requisite kavana, the intent to be in the moment, the spiritual impulse to get on the right wavelength that we should be able to actually daven. This perhaps is what the Gemara and Chazal have in mind when they speak about the fact that one should introduce the tefillah with the words Hashem Sefasai Tiftach whether we realize it or not, all of us, in fact, are offering a tefillah before the tefillah, a brief and very short tefillah before we begin the tefillah of our Shemon Esrei, asking Hashem to give us the ability to daven. Hashem, Hashem, please open up my mouth, please open up our lips so that we should be able to daven. Moreover, the Gemara tells us in Masech the Brachos as well, Chasidim Harishonim Hayushoim Sha'achas, that the early Hasidim, now of course the Hasidim mentioned in the Gemara is the Hasidim with the lowercase Ches, so to speak. It doesn't mean the Hasidim in the sense of Revelev Yitzchak or Berdichev, but it means the pious ones, even at the time of the Gemara, they used to spend, if you take the Gemara literally, a full hour in contemplation before they davened. Now that is the simple understanding of the Gemara, that they thought and concentrated and focused before they davened. However, there's a Hasidic thought which puts a twist on this Gemara, or perhaps, may better yet, you could say, reads the Gemara more carefully, or reads the Mishnah really more carefully. The Mishnah on Brachos, Daflam, and Bet. Because the Lashon of the Mishnah, again, I'll read it, but now I'll read it in its completion. Chasidim harishonim hayushoim sha'achas u'mispalim k'dei she'yechavunu libam avihem shabashamayim. That, again, one could easily read this, perhaps this is the simple understanding, that they sat for an hour so that they should be able to daven with kavana. However, the Hasidim point out, many Hasidic tzaddikim point out, that the language is a little bit different. Hasidim rishonim ha'yishoim sha'achas u'mispalim. The Hasidim thought, sat for an hour and davened. It sounds like, if you read it deliberately and pause the way I did, that they're davening, that they should be able to have kavana that they daven. The more simple traditional translation is to read the whole statement is kind of one phrase without that pregnant pause. However, the Hasidim, again, in a twist, and maybe some would argue in a more precise reading, read it differently. No, not that you should spend moments, let alone an hour before davening, just in contemplation to be able to concentrate, but more than that, Sha'achas u'mispalim k'dei she'chavnu libam l'avim she'shemayim. Daven that you should be able to have kavana. Again, the alternative way to, be read, to read that would be, they spent an hour before davening, kama, and why did they spend an hour before davening, so that they would have kavanah, they could concentrate. And that is the typical Musr idea, that uh, it's important and something we should all consider at minimum to try, if we can, to spend a moment just in silent contemplation before davening. But perhaps we can also learn from this Hasidic insight and of Lev Yitzchak's interpretation of the opening of our parsha to even daven, that we should have the help and the success of davening.